Good morning, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Toby. I used to be a pastor, and now I'm retired. So I'm a past, I'm a past it. <laughs> Hooray! <clears throat> so a very good morning to you. Um, today we're going to return to our sermon series in Luke's Gospel, and our reading so far brings us to the start of chapter 11. It's been well said that a text without a context is a con, or as some would have it, a text without a context is a pretext. So I just want to quickly recap what's gone before. In chapter 9, Jesus gave the 12 apostles power and authority over all demons and diseases and sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. That was a massive development in the coming of God's kingdom. Effectively, when you think about it, it multiplied by 13 the number of people engaged in this dual ministry of gospel and healing. Then we came to what we call the transfiguration on the mountaintop, uh, where Jesus appeared gloriously transformed, and those who were there heard the voice of God say, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. And at the start of chapter 10, Jesus repeated that process of sending out the 12, but this time with 72 others, once again sending them to heal the sick and to proclaim the closeness of the kingdom of God. So all of a sudden, the ministry of Jesus has been multiplied a total of 85 times. There are now 85 points of contact between God's kingdom and um, this dark world. 85 lights shining in the darkness rather than just the one. So there's an obvious progression in this, but there's also complete consistency. Clearly, it is God's purpose to multiply and multiply again in the world this dual ministry of healing and preaching the kingdom. These twin aspects of the coming kingdom were and remain indivisible. And that's not limited to some uh, historical clique like the Twelve. It remains the calling of everyone whom Jesus appoints from that time to this. In verse 17, we read how this large ministry team came back rejoicing at the success that they'd, uh, they'd experienced. And that caused Jesus himself to rejoice as well, that these things had been revealed not to clever academics, but to spiritual children. So none of us is disqualified, uh, even the clever academics among us. <laughs> and I know you're there. Now let's read together chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Well, amen to that. But some of you will be thinking that's a very abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer, a familiar prayer. Um, Why is that? And that's a very good question, and I believe the answer is instructive. The commonly used, fuller version of this prayer comes in Matthew 6, where it forms part of the Sermon on the Mount. 
There, as here, Jesus is simply teaching people how to pray. So what then are we to do with the fact that Matthew places it earlier in the Jesus story than Luke does and gives it a much longer reading as well? I think I make three observations in response to these questions. One, just because Jesus preached a certain message early in his ministry does not mean that he wouldn't also preach it later at another occasion. I know I would. In fact, I do. Uh, Number two, if we read the two versions of the prayer side by side, we very soon see that the intent of both is identical, but that Matthew's version gives a little more explanation of what Jesus really means. And three, the very fact that we have these two versions, one very much longer than the other, about twice as long as the other, means that Jesus clearly did not mean us simply to parrot the words. If he had, they'd read exactly the same. So he wasn't giving us a prayer to say. He was outlining the template for a good prayer time, an ideal prayer time. And it's worth observing that in any case, when we formally say this prayer in a church service, the train is always going much too fast through the station for us to actually get on. We need much more time than uh, saying the words allows us to mean anything that we're praying. And in case you've forgotten, in Matthew 6, Jesus introduces this very prayer with a specific warning against vain or empty repetitions. So let's try and put behind us the idea that the words of this supposed prayer is some kind of magical formula that merely by repeating these words we're somehow praying in the will of the Father. No, to use these words as they deserve, we need to regard them more as a template, a model, and to take some time before God to wrestle with each of its deeper deeper implications. Tom Wright's produced a very helpful little book called The Lord and His Prayer, which I meant to bring a wave at you, but I've forgotten. The Lord and His Prayer by Tom Wright to help us do just that. Interestingly, he's a a bishop in a church tradition that recites the words of this prayer every Sunday. So he clearly sees no contradiction between doing that and also examining its deeper meaning at some length. He seems to be saying that whatever the value of saying the words together in an act of worship. We absolutely cannot stop there. It's a really good book. I commend it to you. Last time I preached on the Lord's Prayer in this church, 18 years ago, I gave three sermons, not just one. But you're in luck. I am not going to preach all three of them today. Broadly speaking, the uh, points I noted at the time still seem to stand quite well. So here they are. The Lord's Prayer model in these verses helps us to adjust our perspective on God, engage with the person of God, involve ourselves in the purposes of God, request the provision of God, find peace with God, and plead for the protection of God. With those headings in mind and feeling free to refer to the Matthew 6 version as a commentary, please do. Let's just take one thought at a time and step it through. Verse 1. 
The disciple who asked the question must have seen that the way Jesus was praying was nothing like he'd seen in the temple or the synagogue. It must have been much more like the way John the Baptist used to pray. And this disciple wants in on the secret. Well, good for him or her. It's a really good place to start every time we pray. Lord, what should I pray? How should I pray? Now, there is, of course, a place for simply blurting out the contents of a full heart to our God. The Psalms are, after all, full of that kind of prayer. But at times when we are more in control of our prayer agenda, this is the way we should pray. Verse 2a, first half of verse 2. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Uh, We could spend a whole sermon just on the word Father in this context. Much cleverer and more learned people than me point out that the concept of God as Father isn't entirely foreign to the Old Testament. Famously, they say at the beginning of the Exodus, chapter 4, 22, God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. But I contend that if this is a famous passage, it's because there aren't many other hints of Father God in the Old Testament. If anything, the term sons of God normally seems to refer to angels or fallen angels, not to human beings. For the most part, when it comes to human beings called God the Father, the Old Testament authors just too too scared to go there. But Hosea does stick his neck out in chapter 1, verse 10, where he preaches of a time when, in the place where it was said to the children of Israel, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. In teaching his first followers to call God the Father, Jesus is, of course, finally fulfilling this promise. The concept of God as Father represents a massive rapprochement between God and us. As many psalmists and poets have pointed out, the immortal, all-powerful God reigns in heaven, and we have to muddle through as best we can on earth. What can such a transcendent God have to do with people like us? But Jesus teaches us to call him our father. Now, a child comes to her father as a birthright, not as an outsider. So this is an essential adjustment to our perspective on God and an invitation to engage with a personal, as the theologians say, an imminent God, one who's right here, not some remote concept far beyond our reach. Yet at the same time, we can only approach him with reverence and praise because he is God. Hence, hallowed be your name. That is to say, may your name be always and everywhere held in the highest honor. Now, if that feels like a mind-bending stretch, approaching God as father and at the same time with due reverence, then I'd say good. That means we're beginning to get it. It is a stretch, but it's worth it. Stretching is good for you. Second half of verse 2, verse 2b. With good reason, most Bibles put a full stop after hallowed be thy name and mark a new thought with a new sentence, thy kingdom come. At this juncture, remember, Jesus is particularly excited about the signs he's seen of the coming kingdom as evidenced by the triumphant return of the 72. But we shouldn't think he's just getting carried away when he puts the kingdom right at the heart of his prayer model because the kingdom was at the heart of his gospel message and his whole theology. 
And once we understand it, we see that it was also at the center of his day-to-day struggles against the kingdom of darkness. Every time he faced down sickness or demons or uh, fake religion or the mammon spirit of his age. When I first came to Vineyard the better part of 30 years ago, these claims about the kingdom struck me as rather extravagant. It seemed to me an outlier in the contemporary theology as, as far as I knew it, which is not very far. But the more I engaged with the concept in my Bible reading, the more obvious it became to me. In recent years, the likes of N.T. Wright have embraced kingdom theology and written extensively on the subject. Once you get it, it's like turning on the light. A whole lot of stuff in the Bible, in spiritual experience and in life in general, suddenly starts to make sense. As Mr. Hodges in Dad's Army was always keen to remind us, there's a war on, you know. Do you remember him? All this to say that kingdom thinking, an active taking sides with God and his great project, is an essential to any prayer time, just as praising him and meeting him as father is. Thus, we've not only adjusted our perspective on God and connected to him as a person, we've also engaged with his purposes. Every time we pray for something, we challenge ourselves to become part of the answer to that prayer. Are you praying for personal healing or restoration? Well, what are you doing towards that end? Are you praying for someone to get saved? Are you making yourself available to speak gospel, to live gospel before that person? Am I praying for God's kingdom to come? Yes. Well, how am I actively working for that kingdom? How available am I to be sent out like the 72, ahead of the soon returning Jesus to heal the sick and proclaim his kingdom? Once again, there's at least one sermon in this text alone, but we have to press on. At home group this week, Graham led an excellent study on these verses. And I think it was he who suggested that the two elements of the prayer we've looked at so far constitute its main substance and objectives. And if so, the remaining three can be seen as prayers for what we're going to need if we're going to involve ourselves in our Father God's work in the world. I'm no Greek scholar, but to my literary eye, this structure is borne out by the way the text is written. The word and links these last three, making them each part of one whole, whereas the first two stand apart as distinct thoughts and indeed distinct sentences. In addition, notice that the first two parts concentrate on God. The last three are all about us. Now, as Wright's book on prayer points out, this prayer points out, in Jesus' day, trades and professions were passed down from father to son. And for our purposes, the term son also includes daughters. There's no get-out clause for you. So if you were a carpenter's son, then like it or not, you were an apprentice carpenter. I hate carpentry, Dad. Doesn't matter, you're doing it. So it should be no surprise that Jesus describes himself, John 5, 19, as only doing what he sees the Father doing. And now he calls us to be like him. Thus, in this prayer, we engage with both our Father and his work in the world, extending his kingdom, 
and driving the kingdom, the kingdom of darkness back, driving back the, uh, that kingdom of darkness and poverty and ignorance and illness and all the rest of it. I think it's helpful to regard our remaining three topics as representing our three greatest needs as we engage together in the great privilege and take on the burden of this apprenticeship. God's provision, his peace, and his protection. Verse three, give us each day our daily bread. <clears throat> Next week, we have the privilege of uh, Morag, who will be teaching on the following passage, which further encourages us to regard God as our heavenly father, not some miserly rich person who might or might not be bothered to help. And finally, here Jesus recognizes, the, sorry, vitally, here Jesus recognizes the importance, both to us and to our Father in heaven, of our physical needs. It's not only legitimate to ask God for the things we need to keep body and soul together, it's so essential that it gets the place of honor in the Lord's Prayer among these three. And for the majority of us who do already know where tomorrow's food is coming from, this petition also reminds us who it all really comes from and to thank him for it. And at the same time, it reminds us to share the good things God has given us with those less fortunate than ourselves. Now, I, I've got a roof over my head, food in the fridge, and even money in the bank, but this prayer reminds me that I don't have any of that as of right. I have them by the grace what the Greeks of old used to call the charity of God. So how tightly should I be clinging on to them? Come to that, since God is the ever-giving Father, why would I feel the need to? It's been well said that God can't give us what he has for us if our hands are clenched into fists around what we already have. We live in an age and a country where people are always banging on about their rights and sometimes seem to have little sense of public duty. Though the alkali attack in London is a wonderful ex exception to that, where people ran to help. But we're called to be better than that. And since the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, perhaps meditating on God's vast generosity towards us may be the start of becoming better. Verse 4a, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. This is the second essential in our backpacks on our way through these days of our wilderness wanderings. Again, the generosity of Jesus is evident in this petition. Though sinless himself, he recognizes and encourages us to recognize our own sinfulness. This is perhaps what Martin Luther was getting at when he shocked the world by saying, sin boldly. Of course, he didn't mean that we should deliberately sin, but he meant that whenever we did, and it would be often, we should boldly expect God's forgiveness and restored peace with him. But in the Lord's Prayer, we're also reminded of the one condition on which this becomes true. We can confidently expect God's forgiveness only when we have forgiven everyone who has damaged us. For recovering Catholics like myself, it's a bit surprising that the Protestants have the habit of sticking a doxology on the end of this prayer. You know, the thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory. All that. It's not in the Bible. Where is that in the Bible, we say? 
And the Protestant says, well, everywhere, you idiot. Well, yeah, but not specifically at the end of the Lord's Prayer as we know it in Matthew 6. According to that, the biblically correct postscript would be, for if we forgive others, the Father will forgive us. But if we don't, he won't forgive us either. Amen. (laughs) That would bring us up short, wouldn't it? Have I forgiven everyone who has ever wronged me or who in some way owes me? Or do I hide behind some hazy idea that some things are simply unforgivable? Or am I so darn British that I keep a stiff upper lip and pretend it didn't hurt? These things are best forgotten, old boy. Well, no, they're not. Jesus teaches that they're actually best remembered and then actively forgiven. That's much harder to do, but it's also far healthier for us and for our relationships. Once again, there's a good few sermons in this subject, and I flatter myself that I might have preached a couple of them. But I know that even in those, I was only scratching the surface of the subject. This is deep stuff. And as we meet with God, uh, our Father, in ministry time in a moment, there'll be a place not only to forgive those who've wronged us, but also to receive prayer for help in forgiving. It's God's will. He wants to help us to do it. And for the deep hurts and traumas that some of us have suffered, this will also be a place just to throw ourselves once again on Father God's mercy and declare our willingness to begin the long and winding road to forgiveness. Some of us, I suspect, particularly need to forgive our earthly fathers. I don't know about you, but I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity. Verse 4b. And lead us not into temptation. Well, amen to that too. Jesus is not suggesting the Father would ever lead us into temptation as we understand the word. If you doubt that, check out James 1.13. He makes it absolutely plain. God himself tempts nobody. But the primary meaning of the Greek word, which I'm going to mangle, so sorry to you Greek scholars, perasmos, the primary meaning is testing an experiment, a proving. So even where, as here, we, tra- we translate it to temptation, we should have that sense in the back of our minds of a testing, a time of trial, as the old timers used to call it. Once again, I'm indebted to Tom Wright for pointing out that Jesus himself famously prayed in exactly this way in Matthew 26. In the face of the greatest test of all, his torture and judicial murder, He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane for this cup to pass away from me. And he prayed it three times. As he repeated it, this prayer to avoid the coming test, he eventually came round to accepting that it must be so, that he had to drink the cup. But he started by praying not to have to. So I take issue with a young zealot who desires martyrdom. I take issue with the old ascetic who deliberately tests himself with unnecessary hardships. Because Jesus says, don't. Pray that you may avoid it. We need to place ourselves under our Father's protection. as the song we just sang, under the shadow of your wing. So we need to pray for it. He cares what happens to us. 
Now, this has just been a whistle-stop tour of an extremely profound text, so please forgive its shortcomings. Principal among these may have been my failure to address the faulty images of father that many of us, perhaps most of us, uh, have been handed down by our earthly fathers. If you've got issues in that area, please also come forward for prayer. And may the father himself make up to you uh, everything he meant in this, the prayer that Jesus gave us. Now, if you were able, please stand with me and I'll pray. Our loving, all-powerful Father, may your name be honored throughout creation, starting in this very room. May your kingdom come right here, right now, in healing, empowering, envisioning your people. Give each one of us what we need to get by. Forgive us our sins as we forgive all who've wronged us and protect us as we go out from here, from all and any unnecessary trials and troubles. Thank you for your complete care for us all, however deep or however slight our needs might be. So come, Holy Spirit, and we come to receive from you. Amen.